Blog Talk Radio. Off, you're listening to Don't Let It Go Unheard. This is the show where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's philosophy, for those of you who don't know, it's called objectivism. It is the one that uniquely upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. I am here. It's January 9th, and I'm glad to say that we get to start today's show on a little bit more positive note than I thought we were going to. As I was preparing for the show earlier today, I saw that there was a horrible double hostage situation going on in France. In one area, there the two remaining at-large suspects in the Charlie Hebdo massacre of two days ago, they had a hostage that they were holding. And then in another area, there were, uh, I guess, I'm not sure exactly. I think maybe a couple other jihadists were holding, I believe, five hostages, maybe more. They had released some, and uh, they were in a Jewish bakery, if I recall correctly. So both of those hostage situations are over. Unfortunately, in one of them, a few people have been killed. And I'm getting the news story over here. It's the New York Times story that Dredge linked to, and I've looked at it some, and I'm, I'm just telling you I am impressed with the French who were handling the Charlie Hebdo suspects because it was two guys and one hostage, and they managed to kill the two and free the hostage unharmed. Unfortunately, things in the supermarket, the Jewish supermarket, did not go as well. Um, It says that there were five hostages. Let's see here. Three hostages were killed. At least three were killed in the kosher supermarket in Paris. Five hostages at the supermarket uh, were injured. Five were reported to have been freed entirely. So given the number of hostages, at least, you know, the situation was a little bit better But maybe this shows you in terms of the vicious assailants at Charlie Hebdo the other day, how maybe they weren't really that professional. They weren't really ready to do a hostage situation and carry it off. Or maybe they were just beaten down from running so they couldn't handle it anymore. We're going to hear more details, I'm sure, as as time goes on. But I am happy that all of these horrible, vicious people were killed that they're not going to be, you know, supported in some sort of prison and uh, given a lavish lifestyle and all kinds of trials and 
you know, due process of law and all this stuff for people who are waging war on an innocent people. So uh, this is not a good ending. This is a horrible situation, but it is better than I thought we would be confronting at the beginning of the show today. If you notice by the title of today's show, what I wanted to focus on today was a, a lot more of a, a positive topic, which is an interview with John Allison, president and CEO of BB&T. And we will be speaking to him. He did the other day reschedule that for the second hour. So at the very top of the second hour is when we're going to speak with John Allison, president and CEO of the Cato Institute currently. And he had been the former CEO of BB&T Branch Banking and Trust, which is the 10th largest financial institution in the United States. So uh, very impressive, you know, sort of background and accomplishments. And Allison himself pretty much single-handedly took BB&T. I mean, not single-handedly. He would say it's a result of teamwork, obviously. But under his leadership is where BB&T went from a very small farm, you know, farming bank in North Carolina and through a series of win-win, wonderfully moral mergers and acquisitions you know, not not the horrible stuff that you hear about out there. And we're going to hear about all of this from him. But through those mergers and acquisitions, he has brought the bank to where it is today. Uh, after he retired from BB&T is when he went over and started working for the think tank Cato Institute in Washington, D.C. And we're going to be interested to talk to him a little bit about that, you know, the different sorts of challenges working for a think tank versus working for a bank, you know, a financial services industry institution. But that will be at the beginning of the second hour. This first hour, I am very eager, if you'd like, to take your calls or chime in here in the chat room on this current news of the day. The phone number, if you'd like to call me, and uh, unfortunately, Bosch Faustin, cartoonist Bosch Faustin, is not able to be here with me on this inaugural first show in our new early time slot. Unfortunately, he had another commitment. He's fine. Don't worry. Yeah, I know that a lot of people are concerned about him because of the nature of his work and, and the attacks on, on Charlie Hebdo. He's okay, but unfortunately, he's not able to be here with me. So more than ever, please do call me if you would like to talk about the news of the day or if you would like to share a question that we want to ask John Allison. We can also take live calls during John Allison's interview in the second hour, so you can wait for that as well, or give me questions for him here in the chat room. If we also wanted to just talk about his book in general, those of you who have read it, you can call in and do that. The phone number is 760-888-5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817. I thank you, those of you who have made the switch and you're over here in the chat room listening to me during this new time slot Thank you for finding us. Sorry that we've changed the time a few times since we've been here at Blog Talk Radio. I tried to make that evening slot work, but I found that in terms of my most awake consciousness, which I would like to be able to give this show, I was just not able to do it in that slot. Arwen, who I haven't seen in the chat room before, welcome Arwen. She says, yes, John is fantastic. I love hearing him talk. I do too. And I, what I want to grill him on those of you who listened to our show that we had two shows ago, it was just one week ago on the second. If you recall what I had tried to do during that, which is interesting. You know, I, I was just reading um, some of the later parts of, of John Allison's book very recently because I didn't get uh, as fast, as quickly to it as I, I wanted to. And the one part was on rational optimism. He has a chapter on rational optimism. 
And in there, he talks about trying to put together a vision that is realistic and yet optimistic and compelling. And that's what I tried to do last week. I tried to say, look, this is a situation that we're in. Yes, we are going in the wrong direction. But if you take an analogy to physics and you think of velocity, where the speed and direction are in the wrong direction, right? The the speed and the trajectory is in the wrong direction. At the same time, we have, I believe, an acceleration in the proper direction. There are a number of changes in the culture that we can point to and we can say, look, this is evidence that the right ideas are starting to take hold in the culture and that we can look forward to in the long term those ideas to have influence in the areas that count culture, academia, politics, probably politics as a last consequence, as we saw this week with the re-election of John Boehner as Speaker of the House. But this is what we're going to be focusing on. So if you look at, well, what is the compelling future, the thing that we can look at as evidence that our efforts are paying off, and, or, you know, I mean, maybe you have a career that has nothing to do, you know, directly with working towards cultural change, but you're saying, look, I am kicking my butt. I am working as hard as I can. I am constantly improving my productivity and my skills and my knowledge, and I want to know that the world that I'm going to be living in is going to allow me to enjoy the fruits of my labor, and that I'm going to have good cultural products that I can enjoy, that I'm going to have the company of interesting and optimistic and happy people that I can enjoy while I am, you know, for instance, having a cocktail, watching the sunset, right? You, you don't want to be talking to morose people who are anticipating the end of the world. And so you say, okay, what is this vision about the world at large? How do we you know, it's, you know, imagine ourselves in a positive context in the future, having achieved our goals, et cetera. And I think it is this. I think it is pointing to what I think we can see is the acceleration, the direction in velocity, the change in velocity that we can see going on right now is positive. And that was before the Charlie Hebdo massacre this week. And one thing I'll be interested to talk to Mr. Allison about is, you know, how does he, because he is one of the most optimistic people. We've had Yaron Brook on here, and he is super optimistic, energetic, very productive. And John Allison is similar, if, if maybe not even more so. I don't know how the, the two would compare. I can't really compare the apples and oranges there. But Allison is, is a real go-getter and always been very optimistic. And how does, you know, how does he see an event like this this week and how does he you know kind of integrate it as part of his worldview and having optimism about the future that that is something i do want to speak to him about in addition to you know kind of more generally the topics in his book but it, this is very very relevant because i mean he does make rational optimism an entire chapter in his book. And there's a section in that chapter devoted to the idea of having a positive vision for the future, even when the situation is negative or potentially negative. Craig over here in the chat room says, bad as it is, the culture certainly is better than when I was young. I'm thinking that's that's a positive thing that I've heard from Craig. I don't know that I've heard 
that exact positive bit of news about the culture. Now, if I'm right, Craig, and tell me if I'm right, again, chime in here in the chat room. Um, he says the bad part is much worse, but there is a good part. Okay, okay, so that's the caveat. And then the other thing that I remember you uh, chimed in last time, Craig, was that even though you it you know agree that there is this acceleration, this change in velocity in the right direction, you believe that it's not going to, for instance, take hold in 20 years. You think that the time span is a lot longer, and I assume that you think that there's a danger that we may not make it, that we may slide into a dark age before that. But go ahead and hear, uh, chime in in the chat room. I've got Robert NYC over here. Thanks for joining us. He says, yep, I've already got your question down, Robert, because you, I think, had emailed me that question, if I if I recall correctly. When will the book be available on Audible? I have that as one of my first questions. So that's excellent. Uh, Robert, does he read his own book? on financial crisis for audible the one book that is there answer that question i don't have it on audible i have it only in the hardcover form he says i like to hear whatever john wants to talk about glad to have him on the show no exactly anything that he is going to talk about is going to be worthwhile but there are a few things along the lines of what i was just talking about that i'm particularly interested in hearing from him and uh, i think you're going to enjoy the interview but as i said if during the interview, there's a particular question you want to ask. Put it here in the chat room. Now, vision and purpose in reference to our culture today? Yes. Uh, Kay McKinnis here in the chat room asked us exactly that is on my list right here. Vision and purpose. Vision, how do you have some sort of picture of a compelling future, something that you're working toward today? How does he solve that problem? And I, and I think he solves it you know, along the lines of what he describes in that chapter on rational optimism. But I, I have other questions about his view of purpose as well. So, for example, he talks about purpose. If we're going to describe what each of our individual purposes is, it's going to be making the world a better place by doing something. And it's going to be doing something that involves you, that you love doing, that you find rewarding, but he believes that everyone's wanting to make the world a better place. And so, you know, what does that mean? Is that altruistic? And how do you frame that? But I, I think the, the purpose, purpose we can think of, um, I, you know, I guess you could adjust purpose based on the state of the world today. So there's many more of us who feel compelled to dive in directly into things that are going to change the direction of the culture or that we hope will help change the direction of the culture. I don't know if John Allison would necessarily work for a think tank unless he thought that that was necessary. So, yeah, I think that there is a, a component of purpose, Kay, and you know, I'm just thinking aloud here, that we can also kind of tie to the particular negative context of today that it might affect you know, the purpose of some people. Uh, the Founding Fathers, there was a quote from some of them, you know, that I'm going to study, um, I, I forget, it was so, something like they're going to study politics so that, the, you know, the next generation can study, I think it was mathematics or maybe something more kind of practical, and then the next generation can study philosophy and arts or something. So the idea is that you're going to put your efforts in what is needed today because, Otherwise, there's not going to be any 
Western civilization for the next generation to enjoy. And so some of us don't necessarily have the luxury of pursuing things that aren't on the front lines of a, of a cultural war. So that is something that we will definitely talk about as well. Robert NYC says that a professional reader does the financial crisis and the free market solution for Audible. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll see how that goes. Okay, so it is 760-888-5817 if you want to chime in, if you want to leave comments on the show, if you're listening after the live show, of course, go to my blog at DontLetItGo.com. Usually I have a bunch of program links there as well. I've got a few things over there today. I have links to the Cato Institute, BB&T, the financial institution of which John Allison was CEO before he went over to Cato. And I've also got links to his book, I've got a link to Charlie Hebdo. Um, if you've gone over to visit the website for Charlie Hebdo, it looks like, if I if my French is okay, it looks like they plan to continue the magazine starting next Wednesday, if I'm reading correctly. So if anyone knows French and they want to go over to my blog at DontLetItGo.com and clink on the, cl- uh, click on the Charlie Hebdo link and see if my French is correct, that they're going to resume the magazine next Wednesday. If so, I think that is awesome. I think that was wonderful. The other day we had a short show. We are Charlie Hebdo. It was just a one-hour-long show, but the purpose of it was to express solidarity with the journalists and cartoonists who lost their lives in that horrible atrocity this week and to, you know, in effect, keep spreading the criticism of the ideology that they mocked. And not all of not all of us, for instance, agree with the method by which or the manner in which they mocked Islam and Muhammad. Uh, for example, Bosch Faustin, he's the cartoonist who is normally the co-host here with me. He has drawn Muhammad a number of times, and he you know publishes cartoons of Muhammad out there a lot. But he depicts Muhammad just as a jihadist. He does it straight, so to speak. And this morning he was telling me that there were a number of people who are responding to, you know, his spreading the drawings on Twitter, et cetera. They respond to him and say, well, why don't you have, you know, Muhammad like uh, screwing a camel or something like this, a horrible, you know, images of just really sick things. And he says, well, why don't you draw Muhammad if screwing a camel? If that's something that you would want to see, you know, why does he have to do it? Each person who is motivated to do this sort of drawing and criticism should go ahead and do it and feel free to do it, but do it in the manner that you would want to just, you know, to show solidarity with Charlie Hebdo. I don't think that you necessarily have to go as far as they do in terms of writing, you know, doing something that's super offensive or not in your taste, but to actually just draw Muhammad, however you would draw Muhammad is is a thing to do, to go out in there and say, look, we live in a Western civilized society where freedom of speech is a core value and we believe we should be able to draw and criticize and discuss a prophet of a religion without fearing physical violence. And in order to make that statement, you probably should draw it, right? You should probably actually draw it. Or if you can't draw, then go ahead and recirculate some of the cartoons that have, um, you know, either stuff from Charlie Hebdo. There's a number of people who have drawn in support of Charlie Hebdo. 
if you go to foston.blogspot.com, Bosch has got a number of things that you can circulate and share out there. Just link, 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 share, share, share. Um, Kay McInnes in the chat room says, anything Bosch wants to draw, I will share on my Facebook page. Thank you for doing that. And again, the more people that do it, the more we are letting the jihadists know that our society is not one that's just going to kneel and give up. We are going to, um, you know, we're going to stand up against this. John says, I think just telling the truth about Islam is damning enough without doing anything offensive. Right. Now, now, John, if you're an artist, then you're going to depict Muhammad in a way that's truthful, but you're not necessarily going to draw something that you wouldn't want to draw normally that isn't, you know, part of your style or your subject matter. And, you know, Bosch has a great time making fun of jihadists and, you know, having Pigman go after them and kill jihadists and stuff. But in terms of, you know, doing anything, I, I think he he always keeps it in good taste, right? And he always focuses on Muhammad himself as a jihadist, as more of a, a dark figure. Wow. Craig says that in the Peruvian press, they are planning a press run of one million copies rather than the usual 50,000. I assume that the publication is going to include the cartoons. That is wonderful. Uh, yeah, John says, perhaps offensive is not the right word. Maybe bad taste is a better term. You know, and this is the thing. Taste is an individual thing. And so what I think could be in poor taste, and believe me, some of the things that Charlie Hebdo published, I would say, yeah, that's kind of in poor taste. But do I think anything should happen to those people because they do something in poor taste? Not at all. And certainly nothing should happen to them simply because they publish a likeness of a religious figure. I, you know, the double standard that we have right now in society where it is okay to have weird art exhibits where you urinate on Jesus or it's a picture of Jesus made of urine. I can't remember what these horrible things are that have partial government funding probably. You know, you can do that and no harm will come to you and probably not even any real threats will come to you because a lot of Christians, they've lived in our open Western society and they are accustomed to seeing things that are offensive and not letting them, you know, ruin their day or not focusing on them and just choosing not to associate with those people. Maybe you'll criticize it. That's fine. And it's, I think, worthy of, of criticism too. I mean, it's just gross stuff, but you're not going to threaten these people over it. And yet when it comes to Islam, nobody wants to criticize. Nobody wants to offend. And that is wrong. So I'm, I'm very pleased that Yaron Brook and the Ayn Rand Institute have taken a big lead on this. They've gone out there and published the cartoons repeatedly. Yaron keeps sharing it on Twitter. Go out and retweet his tweet of the cartoons if you haven't found it yet. I saw hundreds of people had tweeted that. And I think this is a very good sign of people just willing to keep publishing this stuff. Because if, as we have seen this week, the statement is, we're going to kill you if you publish certain things. Our option is either to say, okay, you have now become our editors, you jihadists. And a lot of people have been using that meme this week. They say, you know, meet your new editors. And it's like ISIS or the picture of some horrible jihadist. Um, a lot of the mainstream media here 
in United States, including shamefully Fox News. As far as I know, Fox News has still not published any of these cartoons from Charlie Hebdo. So you could say, okay, Fox News, here's your new editor. It's jihadists who say that they will be offended if you publish these cartoons and that therefore they're going to threaten you. And then the question is, how long can Western civilization survive if that's how we handle ourselves? John says, he's over here in the chat room at Blog Talk Radio, he says, like Jerome Brooks says, they can't silence us all. Yeah, And I, I really like Jerome Brooks' impromptu show the other day as well. He did a whole show on free speech, and he went more into the philosophical foundation of the importance of free speech and how free speech affects directly the ability to think and how it is thought, thought by which human beings produce and sustain our lives. And so if you cut off free speech, you are affecting the freedom to think and thereby affecting ability to live. Now on a more, you know, kind of a, a you know, kind of down the chain a little bit level, when we talk about free speech here in the United States, it is so crucial that Ayn Rand used to talk about the idea that if we no longer have freedom of speech, and she meant vis-a-vis government, that if government is censoring us to the point that we cannot try to persuade out in the world, in the culture, then that's the point at which you say, okay, either you're shrugging or you're revolting or something. But here in the United States today, our government is not yet censoring us. But at the same time, our government, I think, is inadequately protecting us and is, in fact, emboldening jihadists who would like to to silence us. I played the clip the other day, and my poor listeners, they were just suffering because I played it multiple times. And it was Obama at the UN saying that the future must not belong to those who slander the prophet of Islam. And I won't play Obama again for you here. And I won't even say it again because I don't want you know to recall in your mind these horrible images and, and sounds. But I think by saying things like that in front of United Nations, he is giving moral sanction to the massacre at Charlie Hebdo this week. Um, there was someone, actually Glenn Jameson on uh, Facebook put out this thing about, it was a meme And I don't know if he made it or if somebody else made it, but it's exactly along the lines of what I did in the show uh, the other day. And it was Obama at the UN saying this, and then a picture of some of the scene from the Charlie Hebdo massacre the other day. And they're saying, aye, aye, Captain. As if, you know, they said that they were doing Muhammad's will or Allah's will as they were massacring these journalists and cartoonists who were unarmed. They're doing Allah's will. They're doing a God's will by massacring people, okay? Um, they said they're doing that. But I'm saying, I mean, they're saying they're doing something that is consistent with what Obama said. Obama said the future must not belong to those who slander the prophet of Islam. And they were slandering, according to most Muslims, the prophet of Islam. What, what more do you say except for the, you know, okay. And a lot of people have accused the Obama administration and Eric Holder and them recently of kind of enabling or at least not hindering the movement to harm, you know, police officers in our country. 
And I see a similarity here. I see a similarity with Obama, you know, praising Islam. One thing that really got me angry uh, yesterday, and if you go over to the Don't Let It Go Unheard Facebook page, you can find it. Let me go ahead and open a window and do that. It is a story that was published by Jihad Watch about what the White House has said in reaction to the Charlie Hebdo massacre. And one of the things that the new White House spokesman said is that now the White House is going to have to, quote, redouble its efforts, right, redouble its efforts to explain the true tenets of Islam, redouble their efforts to explain the true tenets of Islam. Our White House, United States, our government, is supposed to explain the true tenets of Islam. That's what they're going to have to do. And here's my question for you. Since when is it ever a government's job, a government's job to explain, and by this, of course, they're going to be promoting the tenets of any religion at all, much less this one, because this one, Islam, is stuck in the barbaric Middle Ages, and its fanatical adherents have shown that what they mean to do is end the values, one of them being free speech, of Western civilization, and that they will do it by force. He's going to go out there and explain the true tenets of Islam. I mean, they have this idea that that's part of what it means to defend ourselves, that they have to go out there and describe what they want the tenets of Islam to be or something like that. We have separation of church and state. And for those of you who say, oh, well, I don't know if we really had separation of church and state. There's differences of opinion about whether you interpret the First Amendment as embodying that. In the blah. First of all, there's a lot of historical evidence that we do indeed have separation of church and state in the United States. But even if we didn't, suppose that there's a flaw in my mind in the Constitution such that we really don't have separation of church and state in our founding documents. We should. There should not be government establishment of religion. There should not be government promotion of religion. There should not be government explaining of religion. Religion is a private matter. Religion is something that private organizations should handle. I don't even think that private organizations, religious private organizations should have tax exempt status, right? Because then you start saying, okay, well, does L. Ron Hubbard get tax exempt status? Do we give tax exempt status to mosques? I suppose we do which just helps them spread their horrible message. John over here in the chat room says, I hope that the support for free speech shown throughout the world for Charlie Hebdo will shame the Obama administration into silence for a little while regarding Islam instead of constantly apologizing for it. I mean, that would be really nice. The other thing that would be nice, and, and I've seen people call for this as well, John, is maybe, just maybe, Obama could think of not releasing so many terrorists from Gitmo and just letting them go back to their terrorist training camps. As far as I understand, he is still releasing terrorists from Gitmo to Yemen. And didn't these guys yell out that they were from Yemen? Um, Everything's unstable in Yemen. He knows it is. And yet he's still on this rampage to release the uh, prisoners. You know, the other thing I was really offended by is that what appeared in my news feeds, you know, or on Drudge, in the middle of all of this, right, where I think any rational president would be focused on this issue 
on reassuring Americans about what our government would do to protect our right to free speech here in the United States and talk about concrete steps that he and his administration were taking to make sure that these things don't happen here. Why don't just focus fully on that? But instead, there's some new agenda item that he has that he's got no shame about releasing this week, which is that he wants free community college for everyone, two years or something. Did you guys see that? I don't know if you saw that. That really, really um, made me mad. Now, Joel, hi, Joel. I haven't seen Joel for a while in the chat room. Welcome. Uh, he actually has got a couple comments in here. One of them, he said, Fox News and pretty much all the cable news shows subscribe to Hegelian journalism, which means that they always have two and only two opposite points of view. I think that's right. I think that's right. And, and of course, if you have only two opposite points of view, you're going to be dealing in a false alternative. And that is one of the things that John Allison tackles in his book are a number of false alternatives that exist in our culture. Uh, the other comment he made is he says, the biggest question is not why Obama releases prisoners from Gitmo, but why there's no outrage about it. Yeah, there's no mainstream outrage about this. And I wonder, part of it is the amnesia that seems to go around in our culture where a news story, once it's off the front page, people just kind of forget about it and they don't pursue it anymore. Um, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. Robert NYC says, the bastards trained in Yemen but were on the French watch list for a few years, but then the authorities gave up, thinking they, quote, turned the corner, according to today's Wall Street Journal. So the French made a miscalculation as to the danger that these guys posed. I'm just thinking that once you train in Yemen with jihadists, you're done. I'm not letting you in my country. I mean, you know, I've got someone who comes to my blog, and I think it's under a pseudonym. And every single time I have anything about immigration or about jihad, then he comes over there and he keeps arguing for the idea that we should not allow any Muslims to immigrate into the United States at all. And I don't agree with that, perhaps not even today. I certainly don't agree about that in a proper society. I think in a proper society, and this is what we are finishing off with, uh, in our little special show that we did to show solidarity for Charlie Hebdo. We are Charlie Hebdo the other day here on Blog Talk Radio. Um, at the end, I talked about the fact that if we had a government that did not prop up the enemy's ideology, if we had a government that showed unequivocally that it was going to defend our citizens' right to free speech against jihadists instead of, for example you know, just wringing their hands about the fact that they couldn't stop a pastor in Florida from burning the Quran. Obama was wringing his hands that he didn't have any law that would enable him to stop this guy, okay? This is the exact opposite message that our government should be sending. Our government should be sending the message that they defend us. And, and if, again, if you listen to your own Brooks inaugural episode here on Blog Talk Radio, he talked about the fact that Bush, that the elder Bush, began this trend of supporting morally the jihadists who would want to censor us by their violence. Um, if our government was doing that, if also our media was not intimidated, was not self-censoring. You know, again, I fully support the meme that I just saw on Twitter and Facebook out there within the last day or so, which is, hey, 
Fox News, most ashamedly Fox News, ABC, MSNBC, CBS, CNN. Meet your new editors. And then there's a picture of some jihadists or something. That's true. If you are going to be intimidated and not publish the cartoons that offended them, it is newsworthy. Even if you would never publish those normally, once you say, look, this horrible, horrible atrocity was committed because these people publish these offensive cartoons, and then you don't publish those cartoons, not only are you failing to publish something that's newsworthy, you are enabling the continuation of this culture of intimidation that we have today. So I say, you know, we do have the new media at our disposal. All of us can do our very best to make up for the default by our news media here in the United States by retweeting, sharing on Facebook. As I said, a lot of people could go to my Facebook profile. Hi, Amy Peikoff, if you're just tuning in. It's A-M-Y-P as in Peter, E-I-K, like the word off, O-F-F. Go over on Facebook, and I have as my profile picture, Je suis Charlie, which is taken a little clip from, I guess, the Charlie Hebdo current um, website, and just put it there. Put it there as your profile picture. Just let people know as they're scanning people through Facebook and Twitter and their feeds and stuff that there's a whole bunch of us here. We need to have a whole culture that lets people know that we will not be intimidated or silenced, that we stand in favor or in support of people who criticize Islam and jihad. This is something that we need to do. So if we had all of these things, right? So if we had a proper immigration policy, we had a government that said that we were going to go ahead and support everyone's right of free speech. If we had a a news media that also supported these values and was not intimidated, I would say that if you let Muslims in, no one's ever going to think of the idea of like, oh, yeah, we're going to become, what as they call it, radicalized, and we're going to start a movement to take over in the name of Sharia, Jihad, Allah, et cetera. It, it wouldn't happen. So I, I think we could have a much more, uh, we, we could kind of unabashedly be in support of an open immigration policy. Now, here, here's the thing today. Today, we have the furthest thing from an open, a proper open immigration policy that we could. We are not properly screening people who are letting in. In fact, many of us are scratching our heads in dismay at the fact that Obama seems to be purposefully bringing in people from the countries most likely to produce jihadists, right? He's doing that. And I don't know what kind of screening they're getting out. I have no clue that they're getting any kind of accurate screening. And at the same time, we're keeping a lot of good, moral, awesome people out. I saw a news story that there was a uh, someone who was working for the Cleveland Cavaliers basketball organization, and he happened to be from Israel. He had a job in Cleveland as an expert in basketball. I can't remember if he was a player or on the coaching staff. And there was a question, maybe his visa or his working permit or whatever wasn't going to be renewed. Here's a productive, honest guy working for a top basketball organization, hired for his expertise, and he has a hard time coming in here. And yet we're going to let in refugee after refugee after refugee, put them in quotes sometimes, from countries that are most likely to produce people hostile to our values. 
I find that completely unacceptable. So our immigration policy is terrible right now. There is no way that we feel like we've got the cover. Our media is terrible right now. So the only thing that we can do ourselves is we can speak up. We can create a culture in which we say, look, we are not intimidated. We will continue to criticize the ideas that we see are against our values. We are going to publish the cartoons. We're going to keep putting them out there, the cartoons that the people at Charlie Hebdo got killed for in support for them so that their lives did not go in vain. Um, Stéphane Chabranet, there, you know, he spoke French, obviously, so there's a number of paraphrases and translations of, of what he said, but he said, I would rather die standing I mean, yeah, I'd rather die standing than live on my knees. And uh, I can't tell you that I'm thrilled about those being options, but unfortunately, to some extent today, those are options that we are faced with. And we say, okay, we're going to stand. And if, if enough of us stand over a long enough period of time, then it's not going to be necessary to die standing, but it's going to take a lot of us, unfortunately, there are some things that can be achieved, I think, only, you know, by teamwork. And we do need a, a lot of teamwork in this in order to beat back the assault on our culture and on our on our free speech values. So that is what I'm trying to do. And I am sorry that I've taken up so much of this particular episode, which I wanted to focus more on the more positive, you know, saying, okay, assuming that we have a decent context in which we're not worried about being attacked tomorrow, um, you know, how do we become more productive? How do we keep working towards the world in which the proper ideas are accepted and are operative and influential in the culture? Uh, I wanted to focus more on that end, but because of the events of the week, you know, we do during, we have kind of devoted a lot of this first hour to Charlie Hebdo. And as I said, the latest news, if you haven't heard it yet, is that the suspects have been killed, the last two. If you recall, a day or two ago, the youngest, the 18-year-old, had surrendered himself to authorities when he saw his name all over the place. But the older two that were in their 30s, the brothers, one guy has like a rap video or something. I am not clicking on that link, Drudge. I'm sorry, it's disgusting. Um, But those two guys have been killed. Kudos to... The French, uh, you know, I don't know if you call them SWAT team or uh, I forget exactly what they call the particular team that went out after these people, but they were awesome because there were two jihadists, one hostage, and they managed to kill both jihadists in their raid and leave the hostage unharmed. That is a tremendously professional raid. Anybody who wants to make those jokes about, oh, the French are wimpy and the blah, blah, that would, if we had footage of that raid, I mean, that would just be wonderful, um, you know, to kind of counter that stereotype about the French. Unfortunately, in the other raid, the hostages that were taken in, the supermarket in Paris, the kosher supermarket, it did not go as well. At least three were killed is what I have heard. So that's the that's the news for those of you. It, it's better than it could be because at least those bastards are dead. But it's horrible that this exists and, and that we have, 
in effect, you know, it, it was interesting. I, I was going to tell you the other day, I was going to tell you a positive story. And let me tell you a positive story right now, because the, it was the night before the Charlie Hebdo massacre that this occurred to me in my personal life. I went over to Carl's Jr. to get some burgers for me and friends and stuff. And by the way, before all of you paleo police, you know, rag on me, the, uh, Carl's now has a natural burger, right? And I ordered it without a bun. Okay, so that's what I'm ordering. So I'm ordering these burgers. And the total came out to $19.84. And those of you who know me, you know I'm a privacy fanatic and that 1984 is a book that I've recently talked about and read and, and things. And it deals with the topic of total government surveillance. And and it just so happened that on that day, I had also been speaking on the radio. I was a guest on Rush to Reason with John Rush out of Denver. And... um I was talking about 1984. I had mentioned 1984 that particular day. So the total was 1984. You, you kind of wonder, right? The NSA is like, you know, fudging the total of my thing to mess with my brain, right? That's a 1984 thought right there, by the way. Uh, but 1984, I said I said to the woman, oh, 1984, that's pretty funny. I said, some people were talking about 1984 on the radio today. Now, I didn't say it was me. I didn't want to like say, oh, oh, I was on the radio today, you know, talking about this. I'm so important. So I just said, some people are talking about it, you know, 1984 today. Have you read it? She says, no. I said, oh, well, it's a really good novel. And I, she said, what's it about? And I said, well, it's about government surveillance. And I said that while the author had written it in 1949, now really it was 1948, but it was published in 1949. You know, he had written in 1949, and he thought that by 1984, we would have had total government surveillance. And I said, you know, really good book. I definitely recommend it. And about a minute or so passed and she was, you know, you know how the people behind the cash cash register at Carl's, they have to go and, you know, fill this order or make this drink or whatever. And she comes back and she says, you know, that makes me think about something else. Have you uh, heard of Anthem? Ayn Rand's Anthem. She says, have you heard of Anthem? And I mean, think about this. I was already pretty amazed that I'm there at Carl's Jr., having this conversation about 1984 with a cashier. She is a young, probably teenaged girl, and well-spoken, seemed enthusiastic about checking out 1984, hadn't heard of it, so it was a nice conversation. And then she brings up Anthem. She brings up the connection between 1984 and Anthem herself. And I thought that was really good. I also thought it was probably a result of the books program, the free books program of the Ayn Rand Institute. So I think that uh, that was a really good sign that these things are having an effect on the culture. Um, And again, you know, it reinforced the idea that I talked about on the second, and I've talked about it in the past before, but in, in terms of putting together a positive vision for the future, we focus on the acceleration, the change in velocity in the culture, and it is in the positive direction. Even though Obama's still trying to push us off that cliff, like I said, the latest, I was—I want, I want to say atrocity, but I don't want to use atrocity alongside describing Hebdo as an atrocity. The, the latest affront to rights and values in our country that Obama is trying to unleash upon us is the idea of a quote-unquote free community college education for everyone. That's what he's going to do to further destroy the minds, the culture, further suck 
the life and the productivity out of our economy. Um, Motive power in the chat room over here at Blog Talk Radio says, funny, asking Amy whether she's heard about Anthem. Yeah, oh no, I thought that was the best. I'm talking about 1984, she brings up Anthem. It was a wonderful, and so imagine, I went to sleep that night thinking, wow, this is great, positive direction for the world. And remind, you know, that day, I think that was Tuesday, right, when John Boehner was reelected, a lot of people were very negative and down that day. And I think with good reason, there were some big disappointments, including that Mia Love, on whom many people had pinned a lot of hopes, she voted for Boehner and I don't think gave a very good explanation as to why. So imagine just in this one-on-one interaction at Carl's Jr. that I could see actual positive results because here is a young woman who I'm speaking about 1984 with, and she raises Ayn Rand's anthem. And I told her, of course, yes, that is also a very good book. But I left it at that because I didn't want to come off and say, oh, yeah, that's even better. And Ayn Rand and go read this. Just, you know, let's have this interaction. Leave in her mind that, you know, I'm a a decent and polite customer with whom she had an interesting conversation and also liked this book Anthem that seemed to stick with her for whatever reason, I think it's exactly the way to leave that interaction. Motive Power says, you should tell your own. I've told your own and I've also told Leonard Peikoff uh, because I think a lot of times, you know, if, if you look at dim hypothesis, for example, I think convincing him of the acceleration is difficult. Definitely, sometimes it it can be. Now, let's see here. Oh, they're talking about the Yaron Brook show. Yes, Yaron Brook, the competition. Luckily, he's on Mondays. I am so glad. He's on Mondays starting 8 a.m. Pacific time. That's what he's going to be doing. John says he got the Anthem graphic novel for Christmas. I hope it is a good one. Um, There was an earlier edition of the Anthem graphic novel that had an unfortunate typo in it. So when you read this one, let me know if it has that one. Now Fabian in the chat room is talking about some interactions with people about philosophy, and then they say, oh, yeah, Rand is my favorite philosopher. There are many more people who are positive NPR, has run neutral stories on Rand or even slightly positive stories about, for instance, the release of the new novel, Ideal. So I think that there's a lot of you know, good signs out there. Joel says that um, his wife is teaching the Anthem graphic novel in one of her community college classes. I think that is excellent. Definitely. Yeah, breakfast with your own, brunch with Amy. Yay. Now, we're not, we're not both on the same day, unfortunately. And I wish I could be on the same day as your own. And your own even suggested, he said, you should do, the, you know, from 10 o'clock to 12. And then we could do like all the, you know, mainstream talk show hosts do where one kind of leads into the other. Now, you know, stay tuned for Sean Hannity after me. Yeah, he could say, stay, you know, stay tuned for Amy Peikoff and, and Bosch Faustin. That would be great. Um yeah, so a lot of people in the chat room are excited about some of the cultural products that are available out there, which I think will continue achieving this direction of cultural change. You know, as we are leading up, I can't believe we're at almost towards the end 
of the first hour talking about this Charlie Hebdo massacre, about the changes in the culture. Um, but, you know, just, just imagine that the other day I had been very excited. I went to sleep thinking, wow, we really are in this, you know, going in this more positive direction in terms of acceleration, right? Our acceleration is positive. I'm seeing evidence of it right in front of my eyes at Carl's Jr. And then I wake up the next morning to the news of the Charlie Hebdo massacre. I mean, that was, you can't, you can't even describe it as a letdown. It was very, very, very deflating. Over here, I'm just checking on Dredge to see if there's any more Paris war zone. Oh my gosh. I don't know. Sometimes Dredge is a sensationalist, so we'll take a peek here real quick. Um, oh, it's maybe just his new way of characterizing it. French police storm hostage sites, killing the gunmen. Um, so I think it's still the same news. He just has a new headline about it. I thought there was something more going on. Of course, there were also two people who killed a police officer in Paris, I believe, yesterday. And they have pictures of those scumbags at that New York Times article that I linked to from my blog at don'tletitgo.com. So if you want to look at a couple of scumbags, Feel free to go over there and um, and take a look at that. Check it out. But as we're winding down here, I'm going to have to call John Allison in a second. I'm going to give you a musical interlude to that. Um, let me just tell you, John Allison is president and CEO of the Cato Institute. Prior to joining Cato, Allison was the chairman and CEO of BB&T, the 10th largest financial services holding company headquartered in the U.S., during his tenure as CEO from 1989 to 2008, BB&T grew from $4.5 billion to $152 billion in assets. He was recognized by the Harvard Business Review as one of the top 100 most successful CEOs in the world over the last decade. He's received the Corning Award for Distinguished Leadership, inducted into North Carolina Business Hall of Fame, many more honors. He is the author of The Financial Crisis and the Free Market Cure, why Pure Capitalism is the World's Only Economic Hope, and, uh, excuse me, the World Economy's Only Hope, and then the Leadership Crisis, this is the one we're going to talk about today, the Leadership Crisis and the Free Market Cure, Why the Future of Business Depends on the Return to Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness. So go check him out. He's got a full bio that goes on over at Cato. But what I want to do right now is I'm going to go ahead and queue up a musical interlude for all of you. So do hang on. I'm looking forward to this second hour interview with John Allison. I think he's going to stay with us for only a half hour, um, but we can certainly talk more and maybe, you know, we can get him involved so much that he'll want to stay on much longer. So let me see what music I will play for you here as I dial John Allison. Here we go.
Sorry, you guys. I'm having a challenge getting him on the line. I'll be right back. Okay, everyone, I am finishing my musical interlude because I have, through the magic of Blog Talk Radio technology, gotten John Allison onto the phone on the other line. I'm going to welcome him now. John, thanks very much for joining me here today on Don't Let It Go Unheard. Um, How are you dealing, John, with the events of this week? Hey, Amy. Good afternoon. It's good to be with good you. Good afternoon. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty significant from our perspective. You, I don't know if you know this, but Cato just published The Tyranny of Silence by Fleming Rose, who, of course, was right. the original publisher of the cartoons. And um, we are, we've been promoting the book. We had Fleming come here very recently. We've got him come to one of our events, and we've chosen just to uh, – to drive on and, and uh, not uh, flinch in the face of uh, of a potential risk. We we think the risk is not huge in the United States and the same as, as it may be in Europe, but there there's a real risk because there's a lot of crazy radical Muslims, unfortunately, in the world. And and uh, from my perspective, freedom of, of speech is the most foundational freedom because if it goes in a not long before the rest of your freedoms go. So this is an issue we cannot flinch on and we can't uh, compromise about. Right, exactly, exactly. I mean, I invited you here today to talk about something a lot more in a positive direction, which is your book, The Leadership Crisis and the Free Market Cure. And there was a question that I wanted to ask you about it because you talk about the importance of vision in the book and do I understand right? Vision would be your projection of a compelling future that you're working towards, you know, in the context of which you define a purpose and you set goals to achieve. But it's this vision of a compelling future that you see yourself living in, right? Yes. So I, I, yes. Okay. And it's- it's not necessarily the world you'd like to be in, but the world that's possible to you. <laughs> you know, right, if you right. pursue what would make you as happy as possible within the context of the, the limits of reality, this is what right. you'd look like five years from now, ten years from now, or your organization would look like. Right, right. And so a lot of us, you know, when we do radio shows, we have a New Year's show and we say, okay, well, what is the vision of the compelling future? This is something we talked about last week before this whole Charlie Hebdo thing happened. And my thought was that we do have some challenges 
in formulating this compelling vision of what things look like five years from now because we have bad guys in charge and, and things like this. But nonetheless, I think you can form something that is positive and, and see if you agree with this. Do you agree that while the direction right now that we're going in, particularly politically, is still negative, that the acceleration, if you think about physics, right, the change in direction in the culture is positive thanks to Cato and, and other think tanks like your organization? Yeah, I do, Amy, and I, you know, and I'll have to, have to admit I fluctuate up and down on some of these kind of issues. You know, I, sometimes I get pretty op, uh, pessimistic, and sometimes I get more optimistic. But right, you know, I think uh, partly, really going back, not just partly, significantly going back, Diane Rand and and her her philosophy, a lot of very powerful ideas are in the culture. There's still not a lot of people that accept those ideas, but they're their new ideas in a, in, in a sense of a significant improvement in the traditional ideas that the founding fathers of America had and adding a lot of, of, of muscle to those ideas. So mm-hmm. we have better ideas, which I do think gives us, uh, you know, a, a reason to be optimistic. I was very, you know, I'm not, I'm not so happy that the Republicans won this fall, but I do think no. that the election was not about Republicans and Democrats. It was about a rejection of big government, and that gave me some more optimism. Right, right, exactly. So, that, you know, this is what we're trying to do is we're trying to say, okay, well, how can we improve upon and, you know, increase that acceleration because I think the change in direction is positive. We don't know whether the change in direction can overcome the status who are trying to push us the other way. But that's how we're trying to formulate vision in improving upon the acceleration that we can point to and say already exists. So, for example, the success of Cato Institute, the success of Alex Epstein's book, over the last year and becoming a bestseller and mm-hmm. getting the attention of a lot of mainstream media. So I, I think that there are things we can point to. Um, I'll I'll write you and tell you my Carl's Jr. story from the night before the Charlie okay. Hebdo massacres. I already told my listeners. But there, there are things we can point at. And so then we say, okay, let's try to, within that context, come up with, for example, a purpose. Uh, here's a question about purpose from one of the listeners, because you talk about the importance of having vision, having a purpose, setting goals, and we'll get to more aspects of the values that are required for success in a second. But in terms of setting a purpose, does that change given the context that we're in? You know, you'd say, oh, well, in a proper society, I think I'd just go, you know, maybe I'd write novels, but today I'm going to have to be on the front line of cultural change. You know, why did you go to Cato, for example, right? Yeah, I, I think that's a very it's a very good question, Amy. You know, at the end of the day, you do want to pursue your personal happiness, so that is the context of the purpose. But but you have to consider the broader context of how you would pursue your happiness. I'll, I'll give you an example. I spent most of my career in the banking business. I wouldn't go in the banking business today because of the regulatory structure. Now, it's possible mm-hmm. that regulatory structure will be will be rolled back and become, you know, more freedom oriented. But I, I wouldn't, I couldn't even do what I did in the banking business. But I wouldn't pursue that career today, not because I didn't really enjoy being in the banking business, and not because it wasn't very fulfilling. But I couldn't couldn't be that fulfilling in today's environment. But on the other hand, I don't think it's necessary that 
everybody uh, get involved in, in, in what I'll call the free, greater free society movement uh, because I think there are people that uh, have other passions and they can accomplish those passions even in today's environment. For example, in the technology area, right. it's a pretty free environment. And if that was something that, that, that energized me, I, I would probably pursue that versus, you know, going to Cato. <laughs> uh, but so uh, so Cato was something that I have a lot of passion about. The, 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 the purpose of Cato is to create a free and prosperous society uh, based on the principles of individual liberty, free markets, limited government, and peace. And, and those are values that I hold high, highly. Uh, and, and so I was lucky that my purpose aligned with what you might call this meta goal that, that, that is a contextual question. Right. And one thing you talk about in there as well, and for everybody who is deciding on a purpose, is that pretty much everybody's purpose is two-pronged. One involves doing something that they're very passionate about, but doing it in order to make the world a better place. Now, you assert in there that most everyone wants to do this. Of course, there are a few people like the horrible jihadists in France who don't right. want to do this. But is is that altruistic in any way, the desire to make a world a better place? I, I don't think of it as altruistic. I think it, I think it, I view altruism, from my perspective, as actually a kind of sacrifice, which is saying your life is not important. I don't think you, you know, I thought when running a really good bank and, and uh, was uh, making the world a better place, but I also enjoyed it. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't see that it was an altruistic that I had to sacrifice to do it. It was hard work, but anything worth doing is hard work. So I don't really see making the world a better place to live as altruistic in a sacrificial sense. It, it's it's really, to me, in a win-win sense. The way you make the world a better place to live you do do things that benefit other people, but you do them because it benefits you too. <laughs> and, and so I, I, I think most people. I think it's. I think you lose a lot of the world if you say, "Well, I just want to make myself happy," without holding any context about what that means. I mean, what you know? Do do I care about what kind of world I live in? Of course. Of course, right. it actually goes right. back to your first question. You, you know about <laughs> yes, I care. So, so, and you know, it, I think a lot of the meaning comes out of feeling like this is improving human well-being, and it and it's something I enjoy doing. Right, right, and and the something that you're enjoying doing is indispensable. But in some sense, to the extent that you're trading value for value in pursuing whatever you're pursuing as a career you're going to make the world a better place. You're going to engage in win-win trades with other people, and that's how you're going to support yourself. So you you will in in that extent. And anybody who is pursuing any career, honestly, is going to be making making the world a better place. Now, we started sort of in the the trees, but I want to back up to the forest a little. We started in the trees because of the events of Charlie Hebdo and everything. This idea of, you know, having a positive vision for the future is really, really relevant this week. But just in terms of writing the book in general, why why did you write this book? What do you hope to accomplish with the book? My goal was really to reach independent thinkers with the core of what I view as the objective of that objectivist ethics. This was not really a book written for objectivists because Ayn Rand did that, and I'm not in her class. But I, I'm trying to be a bridge. And I'm sure some objectivists maybe 
object to some of the stuff I said because it wasn't pure objectivism. But 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 I was trying to influence independent thinkers um, in terms of uh, their ethical beliefs to help them understand how they could justify some of the things that they probably heard of believing at a subconscious level. For example, the right to their own lives, the right to the pursuit of their personal happiness. And then I was trying to take that, those ethics, those beliefs, and, and take them to an organizational level and, and finally to a societal level and try to show how the founding fathers of America, while they really hadn't integrated this in the same way that, say, an Ayn Rand had, at, at a what I'd call a gut level, had the same kind of worldview, the same kind of sense of life, and that mm-hmm. that sense of life, those ethical beliefs, actually were the foundation for the United States' success. And then, and then that the progressive movement in particular, and there's certainly plenty of people on the right, but the progressive movement in particular was an attack on those ethical beliefs and on the foundational principles under which our country has been successful. No, exactly. And so your point is reach these independent minds, teach them these ethical principles that are applicable to their success and happiness, not only on the individual level, but in any of the organizations that they work for or run, and then at the societal level. Now, you personally, of course, you have pursued individual success on you know at your personal level. You have shown the ability to achieve tremendous success as the CEO of BB&T. I was reading before the top of the hour the stats about how BB&T became the 10th largest financial holding institution in the United States. And the numbers, I think it was $4.5 billion to $152 billion. Is that correct? I, I think That's I remember right. that. That's right. So, I mean, this is super impressive that you did this on an organizational level. Some people have asked the question, sorry, do you ever plan – to help implement these principles on a societal level, in other words, go into politics? Yeah, Amy, I actually get that question fairly often, and I thought about it. And, and uh, when I came to Cato, I made a very conscious decision that I still thought the idea fight was more important than the political fight. Mm-hmm. I do think, and, and of course Rand said that politics was last, but I mean, that was a long time ago. And I do mm-hmm. think there is more of a, a reason to use politics. I'm a pretty big fan of Rand Paul. Now, I, in fact, I was just literally meeting, had lunch with Rand Paul today. And, okay. you know, he's he's got some mixed premises, but he's a very good in the, in the broader libertarian context. And he's very influenced by, by Ayn Rand, a huge fan of, of Atlas Shrugged. And I do think he's a voice. I don't know if he has. I don't know what the probability of him getting elected is, but he is clearly a voice for libertarian ideas, and he particularly stands out in contrast to conservatives. For example, he's been very vocal about the protection of individual rights, about you know gay marriage and 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 marijuana rights and controlling NSA. Right. Yes. Yes. All of those kind of things, and and he. In that sense, I think it's good that he's out there as a voice, and, but I just feel like my role is is more still on the the the, the idea side, not because I'm, I don't claim to be a you know philosopher or anything like that, but I do think I I am an effective communicator of of fundamental philosophic ideas to independent thinkers. Right, right. Now, when I uh, was reading your book, I was struck by 
the fact that you said the most important concept that people should get from this book is self-esteem. Now, everybody thinks of self-esteem as some sort of woozy concept, you know, oh, our kids need more self-esteem and let's just pat them on the back and make them feel better. Why would you say that self-esteem is the most important concept that you're teaching in a book that's geared towards success principles for individuals, businesses, and society? That's a really another really good question. The the you know self esteem unfortunately has kind of been uh, taken over by, by what you call that fuzzy idea. But real self esteem is what I'm talking about. And real self esteem right. is about the concept that you have a right to your own life and that you have a right to the pursuit of your personal happiness. And one thing and why that is so important in terms of personal happiness, obviously if you don't have a right to be happy, you can't be happy. And secondly, at the societal level, if I don't have a right to be happy and, and, and to pursue my happiness, if I don't have a right to my own life, the world is only made up of eyes. So if every eye doesn't have a right to their own life, then nobody has a right to their own life. And that's when the collectivist, elitist uh, status show up, right? Because none right. of us demand the right to our own lives and so so in, in a personal level if i don't if i don't pursue self-esteem in that rational self-interest view and if i don't defend my right to my own life then i can't win any of these other societal issues because right. free markets free societies are based on the idea that each of us as an individual has the right to pursue our happiness now, if somebody, I mean, and you talk about the fact that at, in childhood, many of us were you know, kind of taught by our parents that we shouldn't be selfish, that really we should be concerned about the others and giving our things. And this affects all of us. What do you think is the best advice you can give to somebody in terms of rooting that premise out? Yeah, I think we all have that premise, I believe, because it was kind of a societal thing. I, I, I often think that our parents wouldn't have done that if they really thought about what the consequences was. You know, because who, what parent doesn't want their child to pursue their own happiness without taking advantage of other people? You, if you really stand back and think about it, right? Right. You, right. That's not what you you want your child to pursue their happiness. I mean, you can't. You're excited about your children being happy, and 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 so. But that's not the lesson we give. The lesson is that we ought to be self-sacrificial. Rooting it out, I think, is a really tough process. In, in the book, I talk about um, trying to become more self-aware. In, in our case, we actually, my company bought a company called Far Associates that was in the self-awareness business and, and helped you through a, a, a psychological process. I, I call it uh, 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 self-hypnosis process uh, that helped you surface why you had developed a lot of your subconscious psychological beliefs. And you see in that process, you can actually, any significant emotional experience is in your subconscious. You can bring it to consciousness as an adult, even though it's buried down in your subconscious, and look at it better as an adult. And oftentimes that will reduce the energy in that experience that may be driving your thinking in ways that you are not conscious of. Right. That doesn't make it all go away, but if you become aware of that experience and why you made that judgment, then over time you can dissipate the energy. I, I, I'll concretize that. One of my 
subconscious belief that I discovered was I'm not good enough, therefore I'm not lovable. That came from a relationship with my mother. It's really not my mother's fault, but it's how I chose to interpret it. But my mother was one of the kind of people, if you got all A's and one B, she only talked about the B. And mm. my hair was never combed right. And I never, you know, it was something wrong with my shirt. It didn't matter right. whatever I did. She would find the flaw. That was just her, just her nature. Yep. And and I have spent a lot of my life trying to prove I'm good enough, which is not all bad, by the way. It's a pretty good motivator. But it's certainly mm-hmm. not all good because you're not going to be happy if you're never good enough, right? right. So right. I have been able to really reduce the energy around that, and, and ironically, without losing the positive motivation. But but it's only because I was able to bring those experiences to consciousness and then start thinking about them as an adult and saying, wow, that isn't what my mother even meant to communicate to me. And even if she'd meant to communicate to me, she was wrong. You know, and, you know, you know making all A's one B is good, not bad. You know, uh, exactly. And, and so uh, I have been able to reduce that energy, but it, and it's. it's Maybe you never totally get rid of it, but it, it it's much less of a driver for me than it was a long time ago. And it, it's actually improved my ability to think logically, if that makes any sense, because these subconscious premises can impact the logic in your thinking. You don't, you're not detached from your subconscious when you try to make uh, uh, logical decisions. I'm not talking about 2 plus 2 for logic, but the complex logic you have to deal with within, in everyday life decisions. Right, because applying a philosophy to everyday life is always a little bit messy because of the different factual situation, the different contexts. And if you have a little bit of uncertainty about how something applies to a context, then some subconscious premise or emotion can take hold and suddenly you've made the wrong decision. So that that could definitely exactly. that could definitely happen. One yeah. of the things you do in that section on self-esteem is and I I take it that you're talking about it because it helps people recharacterize how we can be benevolent to people but not sacrifice our own interests. You talk about charity and benevolence, how they can be also in your own interest. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I I think there's an important distinction between altruism, which I view as sacrificial, and just being benevolent. I think, you know, don't most of us want to be nice to other people? Now, there's some people, obviously, we don't want to be nice to because they're crazy and all that kind of But, I mean, it's just nicer to be nice to people. I don't mean, not in a self-sacrificial man. It's just like not being rude to a clerk. What's If there's no reason to be rude to a clerk, we actually feel better about that. Uh, I, I use some examples of some personal life experiences that kind of happened to me by chance where I got on a board of a handicapped workshop and it was part banks do those kind of things and 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 when I got there the 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 handicap workshop was really having a lot of financial problems and I was fortunately because of my understanding of of business able to be very helpful in in saving the handicap workshop and one thing I observed about some of these people were mentally handicapped some of them were physically handicapped but what I observed about many of those people in that handicap workshop is that work, which we, most of us would think was very simplistic, was incredibly valuable to them. They, even though they were in a certain sense dependent, they wanted to be as less dependent than the, as least dependent as they could be. Mm-hmm. And I was actually impressed by the integrity of people that had physical or and some of them mental handicaps and, and the importance of work. So. 
and you can argue, well, I, I didn't get paid for being on this board, so I was. And I think I felt like I was being benevolent, but I also got a lot of something out of it to me. I mean, I, I enjoyed it. It was nice to see people striving to be the best they could be. And fact, frankly, in some cases, I thought, well, you know, if just the average Joe had the integrity of a pretty big chunk oh. of these handicapped people, right. <laughs> we'd be a lot better in the world, you know. And, and right. it, was a, it was a very useful level, a lesson to me. Uh, and 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 yet I think it would have been defined by a third party as, you know, it's benevolent. I wasn't getting paid for doing it. But I did enjoy doing it. I did enjoy doing it. Very good. Yeah, and there is. I think there is definitely a difference between doing something that you are not sacrificing time that you shouldn't be or money that you shouldn't be to help other people right. versus saying you you have a duty to do this even if you are trading a higher value for it. There's a couple topics that I was very interested in. I think they're going to be too involved for us to get in uh, for the few minutes here. You say you have to leave after a half hour, correct? I can stay for a little longer than that if you, if you've got time. So that's okay. Well, well, these these struck me, and this this is again in the section on on self esteem. Um, you talk about the fact that you have never seen a free rider problem that that actually hasn't come up as a significant issue in any of the voluntary associations that you've dealt with. I was yeah, I was struck you know, by that because you know a lot of, a lot of people think it's a huge issue. Right. I mean, it's one of the – a lot of so-called free market economists argue for government policy because the idea is that if 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 I pay for it, then somebody else will get a free ride. Well, my observation – I'll go back to the handicap workshop, and I helped build a Ronald McDonald house. The people that are doing those kind of things are doing it for themselves. <laughs> They're not worried whether somebody else gets a benefit. And, and I also use the example of my uh, – in, in the mountains where I live, we are dependent on a volunteer fire department to 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 protect our. our this is where my my, my vacation home, uh, and we give a lot of we give money to the volunteer fire department. The fact that somebody else in my neighborhood might not give money is absolutely irrelevant for me. I'm if they get a free ride, so what? Am I not going to have a volunteer fire department because you know because one of my neighbors doesn't give me any money? If if I had to give more money to have the volunteer fire department, I'd give more money because I get a direct benefit from that. So I right. I, I just haven't experienced in anything I've ever been involved in this the, I, this free rider problem. I understand it sounds interesting in theory, but I'm waiting for people to give me actual examples. Okay, and you say the same thing about market failures, right? This is another pretext that people have for regulating our economy this that's a huge pretext if you if you look at most of the argument for uh, more government policy they're always talking about market failures well my experience in business i never saw a market fail i saw government regulation screw many things up right. left and right I, I, all over the place, but were markets failing? I just, I just, there's never, and I was in business 40 years, I never saw a market fail. I saw uh, government regulators make bad decisions, and I saw individual firms make bad decisions, and the markets worked. They went out of business. <laughs> and I saw people commit fraud. They went to, you know, they got, they went out of business and went to jail. And so markets, my experience is markets always work. It's only when the government gets involved that you get uh, failures, but they're not market failures. They're regulatory failures. Right, right. So you think that that is uh, something that's made up that doesn't really exist and people are just using it to to take control. 
Absolutely, right. absolutely. You know, and 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 I've over the years pursued with economists. Give me examples. And every time they come up with an example, you can say, well, wait a minute, the government caused that. <laughs> the government, it's like the antitrust. There are no examples uh, of any of monopolies that were destructive that weren't government created. They're none. They're zero. Right. They, they, right. they cannot produce an example. And wherever you had anything that looked monopolistic, it was because they were providing a radically better product at a much lower price. So there just aren't any examples. And if there aren't any examples, then that's not a problem that needs to be dealt with, right? Right, right. And then another interesting place that you talk about the destructive effect of regulations is in your chapter on productivity. You talk about the pillars of productivity, knowledge, of course, capital, the tools to make that knowledge, put it to good use. And then you talk about incentives. And because I don't have a background in business, When I think of productivity, I think, oh, yeah, knowledge capital. Then you say incentives. Hmm. It it makes sense, of course, that an incentive is something that is going to give you the motivation to put your knowledge and and capital to good use. But people don't necessarily see how that would translate into politics. How can law be an incentive one way or the other with regard to productivity? Well, I think law is a huge incentive for better or worse, better in the sense that it protects your property rights. You know, you look at one of the main problems in undeveloped countries is is you don't have any right to your property. And this is particularly a big problem for poor people that would, that if they at least own their home, could borrow money against their home to start a business, which is one thing that really was a major factor in the United States, that you could own a house and you could borrow against your house and start a small business and maybe that business would grow would grow into a big business. But if you don't own your home, if you don't, I mean, you live in it, but they can take it any time they want to, then you can't use that property for that purpose. So property rights, that's a very positive role of government. And while, while the protection of, it's really a subset, of course, of individual rights, but the protection of property rights is essential for economic well-being. Now, the flip of that is regulations destroy incentives to innovate. Uh, I would say the majority of regulations are actually designed to protect existing participants. They're always they always say they're designed to protect consumers, but they're really right. designed to protect, protect existing businesses from competition. <laughs> you know, it's like all these rules. You can't, you know, you have to uh, get certified to be a hairdresser. I mean, come on. <laughs> right. You have to be right. certified. You can't, you know. Uh, you can't You can't even braid month, hair or something. You can't even braid, braid hair. hair. I mean, the list yeah. goes on and on and on. Or, or to do, uh, to help people uh, with, with uh where their homes, where they should put their furniture and stuff, and you, and you have to have a, a, a certification to do that. All that's designed to protect existing incumbents, not protect consumers. Um, so regulations reduce innovation, reduce creativity, and reduce economic growth and economic well-being. And they're, and they're generally most destructive for small firms, small businesses, although Big businesses have the burden, but the intellectual cost is not as high. I tried to explain that. You know, I, when I started at BBT, it was a small bank. Well, if you're in a small organization, a relatively few minds make the organization successful or not. If those minds are occupied on making regulators happy and staying being productive, the organization will be radically less productive. 
In a big business, you have the same problem, but you can hire more people, and you can. It's easier to delegate that regulatory cost over to other people. So, in a generic sense, regulations are almost always relatively better for big businesses than they are for small businesses, even if they're very bad for big businesses. <laughs> and, and and that is the story of innovation and creativity, because a lot of innovation comes out of small firms. Right, and and if Obama is so concerned with income inequality, then he shouldn't create this barrier to entry for people who want to start small businesses because they can't figure out how to do it. I mean, one of the things that some uh, think tanks and nonprofits have been doing lately is just providing information for people on how to actually navigate all the rules and regulations necessary to start a small business because it's a myriad and, and it I think it's brain cracking even for people who are trained in the law like I am. So, um, you know, that's a huge barrier to entry. It's a huge, uh, you know, disincentive to work to get yourself out of poverty to deal with the inequality, so to speak. No question. In fact, yeah. the irony, although the Obama administration constantly talks about income inequality, it, it, they are the source of a lot of it. They've certainly made <laughs> harder for people to, to to be economically successful because of all the regulations and rules and, and that they have passed, uh, including, by the way, Obamacare itself is a really difficult thing for smaller firms. Right, and it's it's changing all the time at the whim of the pen and the phone, which yeah. makes it even worse, yeah. Another thing you mentioned is capital gains tax as a disincentive, and as I understand it, as of the first of this year, capital gains tax came back into effect or was increased. I can't remember which, but that's going to probably, you would predict, have very detrimental economic effects. Yes, I mean, there's, and what's interesting about that, there's all kind of, Economic literature, not just from conservative economists, free market, from regular economists, even left-wing economists, that said capital gains tax is a bad thing. Uh, but the people in Washington just want more money to spend because they don't really care about the economy. They really care about getting reelected. And the more money they get, the more gifts they can give away on the surface, <laughs> and and the more votes they can buy. So so they they will. They'll do it even if that's a short term. And, and there's a lot of evidence that capital gains tax reduces taxes in the long term. It probably has some front end increase in, in taxes because it's hard to realign all your capital investments. And, and even if they know it'll reduce taxes in the in the long term, they're only worried about the next couple of years anyway. That's their whole worldview, and they want more right. money so they can buy more votes by giving it away. And that it's really discouraging. And this, unfortunately, is not just progressives. This is a lot of a lot of conservatives are in the same category because they're all in the business of getting reelected. Well, and one of the new initiatives that Obama has callously thrown out there in the past couple of days in the you know wake of this Charlie Hebdo massacre is he says, oh, I'm going to give free community college education to everyone, I guess with this new tax money or something. He wants to do this. Uh, in the book, you talk about the fact that we should get rid of government involvement at all levels of education. So do you, are you at Cato, I assume, are going to try to try to fight this. Absolutely, absolutely. We're we're for the total privatization of uh, we're, we're for pro we're we are for for profit education totally unregulated. Uh, I mean, if you look at the advances relative to other compared to normal technology or other industry, the educational establishment is way behind. We spent tons of money more per, 
per child, and we get no better outcome. Um, we've got we're indoctrinating them on the wrong ideas, but on top of that, we're not teaching them how to think critically. And the decline of the middle class, I think, more than any single factor, is attributable to the failure of the public school systems to educate people to be critical thinkers. And wow. as technology becomes more important, the real skill you have to have is your ability to think critically, and, and we're not teaching that. Our schools don't even try to teach it. So, no, we don't need to <laughs> pay for community college. We need to get rid of, of the public involvement in community colleges and, and have totally private education. Right, right. I remember that in the section on knowledge under productivity, you say the most important knowledge to have is how to think and think critically, and that is just something that the government schools are not teaching and probably really can't teach because the curriculum is, is dictated by a, a government agenda versus people in the free market experimenting. So um, I'm glad to hear that yes. Cato's working for that. I'm glad to hear that Cato's working for that. Now, here's, you know, going back more to some of the fundamental values that you talk in the, about at the beginning of the book, you said that in terms of people and their success, there are two issues that have been fundamental in your experience, and this is all your experience as a manager and working and everything else, and those are evasion and focus. And I was wondering if you could yes. speak to those a little bit. I, I, I describe evasion as the ultimate psychological sin, and, and evasion occurs when you're presented with some piece of information that at some level you really know you ought to examine but you refuse to examine it, typically because it threatens something you want to believe about yourself or you want to believe about the world, and so you're detached from reality. And that detachment from reality is the most dangerous place you can be. I use the example of being a small business lender and, and observing small businesses that were going along fine and something happened in the economy or often something happened at home, and the leader of that business just literally doesn't want to hear it, and he runs the business right in the ground. You can't give him feedback because he, he can't hear the feedback. Mm. Um, the CEOs of these big companies, big banks that fail, were very smart people who had been well-educated, had been successful in many cases 20, 25 years in their career, uh, and yet made some horrendous decisions. And in most cases, the, the decision was based on some form of evasion where they were just kind of hoping things would go along when they're really rationally long before the problems you know, got so dramatic. They they had the intelligence to see them coming, but it, but the short term cost uh, was going to be pretty high, and they didn't want to incur that cost. So, right. really bad decisions are typically some form of emotionalism and invasion. And then and then related to that is the issue of focus, which is about paying attention. <laughs> uh, right. Um, we, I, I, to me, the issue of um, do we have free will or self-evident? Because we all know that we choose to focus or not focus our minds. <laughs> you know, we can we can go in and out of focus. We do it very often. Uh, you know, I think every little few seconds you're reflecting on whether you know you know it's in a subconscious kind of thing, but you're you're deciding to pay attention to something or not. And and people that are more successful, I've observed, far better than correlated with IQ are people that don't evade and, and they stay in focus because they learn more from life. I saw this in the banking business where we would hire people out of high school and they would, after a few years, be outperforming people 
with college degrees that probably had higher IQs. But they were, pay, you know, the work was important to them. They were paying attention. They made mistakes, but they learned from their mistakes. They admitted their mistakes instead of evading their mistakes and doing them over and over and over again. And, and their their learning was exponential, whereas other people that kind of didn't want to admit their mistakes or weren't paying attention, they weren't interested in their work, they just learned a lot slower. Um, so I see the ability to face the facts, I mean, and really face the facts, and to stay in the game. And, of course, the two are related. The tip, one way many people evade is simply to go out of focus. You, you, and I see this sometimes. I'm sure you see this sometimes with your students. When you present something that it's some they probably get, they ought to think about it, <laughs> but they don't want to think about it. So they go, you know, they start thinking about you know going to the beach or something else, uh, and and you, and and they don't focus on the issue at hand because it's threatening something they they don't want to believe, they don't want to face. Right. Right, and so then they just put themselves out of focus. Everyone, you are listening to right. John mm-hmm. Allison, and we are discussing his recent book, The Leadership Crisis and the Free Market Cure, in which he discusses the principles that underlie our society of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, to which we must return if we're going to ensure the future of business and, and our own success. I have one quick practical question and then one fun question, if we could end with those, John. And well, the sure. first, right. the, yeah, the first is our listener, uh, Robert, out of New York City, wants to know, will this book be available on Audible, audio version? Yes, it should be, and it should be soon. But I don't know exactly when. It is available um, already on, you know, you can get it, uh, as an ebook from Amazon, but but it's right. not. I don't know that the Audible book's out yet, but it it's, it's supposed to be. Okay, so it's going to be pretty soon. Excellent. I, I think so. Look, that's what my publisher told me. Anybody that's ever fooled with publishers knows that it's not always accurate in what they say. Yeah, and then also as we didn't really talk about the issue of justice, but I know and I I remember from long ago you took me on a tour around BB and T, and I was really impressed. And one of the things you talked about was how you applied justice in the context of your organization, rewarding the aspects of employees' performance that you wanted to have continue, inspect what you expect. I remember you talking about all of this. And there are, you know, there's chapters in the book that people can look at. How would you uh, evaluate? I know that you saw the movie Whiplash. I heard that you saw the movie Whiplash. Mm -hmm. How do you evaluate the teacher and his... Some people think the methods are fairly controversial in terms of bringing out the best talent in the members of his orchestra. Well, I really like Whiplash. I'll, I'll admit, I really, really liked it. It, it, it. I guess it appealed to my sense of life, not because I feel like I'm a teacher, but I don't use the harsh techniques that teacher did. I thought, you know, it was a little mm-hmm. too much. But I do, and I actually mentioned this in my book, the people that taught me the most were often the toughest. <laughs> they were merciless right. in a good sense. I think they were they were benevolent, but they were merciless. <laughs> you know, they wanted you to be successful, but they knew that they had to demand the most out of you. And and I've always appreciated. I had coaches that I thought were much better than other coaches because they they just really 
forced you in a certain sense, although it's all it's always voluntary, but they, they wouldn't let you get off by saying, oh, I'm tired. <laughs> okay, you're tired, with you know, so what? And and so I you know, he, he, the teacher in Midwest was a little extreme, but not but the, the principle of a demanding teacher and the principle of the insistence on excellence I think is so important. And and I I I I think of myself as a teacher. Why I, I wouldn't you know throw a uh, whatever that was <laughs> the thing you threw at somebody. I would never let one of my employees, if I could help it, um, you know, off the hook. <laughs> you know, I might right. say it nicer. I may not you know I may not make them cry. That wouldn't be my goal. But I wouldn't say it was okay. I would not say. And I think a lot of people do a lot. A lot of teachers do a lot of damage by saying mediocrity is okay. And that's what I saw in that teacher. He he was saying, look, you got to go for the absolute best within you. You got to drive yourself towards excellence. And I really respect that. I really respect that. Right, right. Excellent. And it's nice to see cultural products like that out there that we can enjoy that yes. are in line with our values as well. I mean, I think that's one good sign that we that we have in the culture. John, thank you so much. Uh, in this last second or two, do you, is there anything that you want to plug in terms of an upcoming speaking engagement? People should go find you. Of course, we want them to go to Amazon or their favorite bookseller and get The Leadership Crisis and The Free Market Cure. Go support his work at Cato. But in terms of the next several weeks, what are you doing? Well, I'm, I am coming out to California. We've got several events uh, out in California that you can anybody that's interested can find on the Cato website. And I, I would just uh, recommend um, the Cato website on on policy issues. We've got some great work on what to do about Obamacare, what to you know, what to do about Dodd Frank, what to do about uh, taxes, those kind of things. So anybody that's interested in policy issues, Cato's not really a, phil- a philosophical organization; it's a policy organization, but it's a right. very good libertarian policies uh, in our work. So I would recommend the Cato website for people that are interested in policy issues. Great, thank you so much for sharing your valuable time, Absolutely. and I do look forward to seeing you when you come out to California. Take care. Thank you very much, Amy. Have a great day. See you soon. Take care. Okay, so that was John Allison. I was very happy that he generously shared more of his time with us. Selfishness here in the chat room says, three cheers for John Allison. Arwen says that she has so many thoughts about Whiplash. She says, I really enjoyed the movie, but my interpretation seems to be so different from many others that I've heard. If you want to call in, we can definitely talk about it if if you'd like Arwen, it's 760-888-5817. If you are not a talker, some people don't like to go on air, you can also keep typing here in the chat room. Um, thanks, people are liking the uh, the interview. As you can imagine, I am nervous preparing for an interview like Sean Allison, so I wanted to make sure that I got as many good questions as I could in whatever time he could give me. That was the first time that I've actually interviewed him. I've heard him speak so many times you know, obviously interpersonally, but so many speeches and many of the speeches that he's given, uh, you know, some of the content is in this book, but in this book, it's in a different form. And then there are a lot of things in the book that I didn't know before. What you want to look at here is, I mean, here is a man, again, I just can't stress enough how accomplished he is and the success that he achieved at BB&T. He knows what he's talking about. He has taken objectivist ethics, in essence, and applied it practically in a tough 
business situation, financial services industry is one of the most heavily regulated industries. And those are some of the conversations that I've had with him over the years about, you know, what kind of burden that is on leaders in that industry. He managed to grow that business to the 10th largest financial institution. Again, $4.5 billion, up to $152 billion. The man knows that of which he speaks. So I definitely recommend go check it out, The Leadership Crisis and The Free Market Cure with John Allison. I was also pleased to hear he's got a similar idea of mine in terms of formulating the compelling vision for the future and the challenges. He was realistic about the challenges inherent in it. He, if you heard him earlier, was saying that he too sometimes, you know, wavers back and forth in terms of, of optimism on a daily basis when you are confronted with horrible news like we have been this week. Uh, it looks like he is saying no about any sort of a political run. He admits he gets the question often, at least at the moment. He thinks his efforts are better spent in the kind of situation that he is. So um, anyway, it's good. Oh, thanks, Freedom Bree says, great interview. Thank you, guys. I'm glad. I'm glad that you enjoyed the interview. He seemed to enjoy the interview. That's always one of my favorite things. Another um, interview that I loved, I mean, I've, I've had so many interviews that I've loved doing. I've interviewed Ladar Levison. I've interviewed uh, David Allen, who wrote Getting Things Done. That was really fun. I interviewed um, also former UN ambassador, um, John Bolton, and actually argued with him a little bit about Edward Snowden, and that was very rewarding. I did that for, for Tammy Bruce some time ago. So when you can give people a, a challenging interview that they enjoy, I interview your own book, but I don't even call it an interview because he basically interviews himself, and he'll come in here and sit in the studio and look in the chat room, and he'll be reading the chat room by himself. I don't even have to read him questions because he's ahead of me. Uh, I've got a couple callers online, and I'll go, go ahead and take one. I think I know who this is. Hi, who's this? Hello. Is this Bosch? And, yes. I just had lunch with uh, Ted Cruz, so I was busy. And, uh, <laughs> I couldn't make it on, on on the show. It was good. It was good. I, I taught him some stuff. So, Anyway, great interview. Great interview. You enjoyed it? Good. I'm, I'm yeah, happy about great. that. Yeah. And one thing uh, also the, about... about I'm sorry about the question when it comes to the teacher and whiplash. It's mm-hmm. it's it's a story. It is drama, so they have to push it a little more than they would in real life. I doubt that they, right. Damien Chazelle, the writer director, had a teacher that bad. But for right. a movie, it works beautifully, and that's the whole thing. It is drama, and you got to push it. You well, know, and I think I think people do some of the same thing. I was going to say Atlas Shrugged or The Fountainhead, right? This yeah, is exactly. romantic. Literature. This is a, basically a romantic movie making. Right? It is. You push. Right. You push. You push to extremes, and you, uh, you know, you you put these these characters against you like that. But anyway, great interview. Uh, I hated you. being uh, away from the show today. Thanks everyone uh, for listening. As always, I'm gonna I'm gonna check out. Thanks for we'll, checking uh, in, Bosch. And I've got one other caller right. that I'm gonna grab in the last few one, minutes. So one Excellent. last thing. Sorry, uh, everyone, check out my new Muhammad cartoon. Hurt uh, Builders retweeted it. Uh, no, uh, Tammy Bruce. A number of people did, and they got a lot of retweets and a lot of shares. Now, yeah, I got some Muslims coming up to me and doing, doing their crap. But uh, check it out. It's a time for us to really push these things, take it seriously, and push as many Muhammad cartoons out there as as possible. As Jerome Brooks said on, on yeah, the yeah, and I I, I anyway. can't believe that they're telling you you should draw the ones in poor taste or whatever. That's it's ridiculous. Just, but yeah, it, yeah. It, yes, people are are challenging me. Hey, you got to get more offensive. You got to get more obscene. That's 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 ridiculous. That's not my style. 
You know, and nope. plus I want to focus on on the fact that this guy was a warlord monster. He was, you know, the pedophile stuff, whatever. I'm 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 supposed to go there and draw that. Disgusting. Right. Right. All right. Exactly. Uh, okay. Take care. Talk to you later, boss. Okay. And we do have one other call that I'm going to grab right here. Hi, who's this? Hi, this is Arwen. Hi, Arwen. Thanks for calling oh. in. So tell me about Whiplash. <laughs> so um, I just, I found it very different from what a lot of people seem to be interpreting it as. Um, I didn't see it as simply a movie about pursuing your goals and achieving greatness. It's it's specifically about whether or not uh, Fletcher's methods are forgivable or right or that kind of thing. And the conclusion of what I liked about it was I felt like it was trying to make the argument that Fletcher is sort of irrelevant um, because Fletcher being the the evil teacher. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the key scenes for me was the scene where he's talking with um, the student and asks him, the student asks Fletcher, well, um, what happens if Charlie Parker, who was the, the case study, I guess, what happens if Charlie Parker gets discouraged? And Fletcher answers, Charlie Parker wouldn't get discouraged. Um, right. And then follows up with the two most terrible words in the English language are good job. Um, but I feel like that completely ignores also that a Charlie Parker wouldn't just sit with good job and feel that they've achieved what they want. Um, and, yeah, and I just, I feel like Fletcher is mostly just sort of a sadistic narcissist and he can't accept that he's ultimately irrelevant in in the success of a Charlie Parker. Um, anyway, it's very you know, hard I, for me to I, I'm not I'm not sure. Like, I mean, so so the the question would be if you are a, a teacher and you're at least a teacher that refuses to praise you know mediocre work with good job and you know, who is, you know, pushing, 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 pushing. I mean, we've seen so many scenes in movies, you know, where you've got the military drill sergeant and he gets the guy to sit down and do a bunch of push-ups and he tortures the guy and then the guy becomes great, right? We've seen this over and over again. And I think it is, you know, what Bosch said a little bit, there's this element of, you know, romanticism where it's taken more to an extreme for the sake of the artistic portrayal. But, I think they are trying to say, look, you know, that the someone like a Charlie Parker would benefit from being pushed even in an uncomfortable way that, you know, may, maybe that particular person like Fletcher is necessary to counter all the other people in their lives that were just going to say, oh, good job, you're so great. So I, I, don't, I don't know even... You know, I have to see that scene that you're describing again because I've seen the movie only once. I'm a real slacker on this. But I don't know that that scene means that he's irrelevant, right? Because, yeah, a Charlie Parker, um, you know, Charlie Parker's not going to be discouraged by that prodding. Um, What they didn't really address is how much is a Charlie Parker helped by that kind of prodding. And I could see how 
you know, he would be. And, and what John Allison just talked about, and actually he has, he talks about it in his book, when he talks about the teachers who he found the most inspiring, they were the ones who were the hardest on him. And I had that experience as well. The high school teacher who assigned the fountainhead to me had a lot of influence on me. And at the same time, I mean, he would, um, if you started to doze off a little bit in the early morning English class, he'd come up and boom loudly right next to you on purpose and embarrass you and, you know, make it, obviously he, I, I, I can't remember if he threw chalk. He may have thrown chalk, not at the person, but like near a person in order to startle them awake. So it's uh, kind of there. It did sort of have an influence and it, it maybe had an influence because it counteracted the good job people that were around you. That's my take anyway. I There's a lot of things to talk about, I think, in the movie. Um, so I, I hope to spend some time writing about the various things. Well, I look forward to it and, and send it on to me, and then we can share it with the, the audience and get even more of a discussion going because it is, I mean, you would agree, one of the most important movies of the year. Oh, yeah, I, I definitely think so. Um, I just think there was a, there was a, a very different, theme and statement that I don't hear talked about very much that I also think is very, very important. Right, right. But the the idea of saying the, uh, you know, the fact that it was a really extreme negative pressure, you know, almost hazing that this guy was using on people, um, that that is due to it being like a work of art and really taking things to the extreme, that probably doesn't solve the issue for you at all. No, I mean, a lot of, I'm trying to think of how to distill it quickly, but a lot of the story to me seemed, it seemed about freeing yourself from people who harm you, but use like the good in you as an excuse or an entry point in order to cause you harm. Hmm. Um, and I saw it more of a, as a story of an escape from abuse. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't okay. know how else to, no, no, to put no, it right no, now. No, no, I'm, I'm definitely starting to get the, the train of, of reasoning there. What you could also do whenever you're done with what you're doing, if you're going to write it up, et cetera, if you want to post it or link to it over at my blog at don'tletitgo.com on the program notes or in the comments for today's show so that people could know that this is what you were referring to if they listened to this show, that would be excellent. I would I would love to see it sure. over there. And then we could talk about it more in a, in a future show because we are just about out of time. But Arwen, I appreciate you tuning in and, and participating in the chat room and calling in. Thank you. Hope I'll see you again. Great. Yeah. Okay, everyone, we have about two minutes left. Um, along the lines of business and productivity, which is something that I hope and hoped I was going to focus more on in a positive way today, some of you have, if you're on one of my email lists, have gotten an email from me today about Eben Pagan. Eben Pagan is a marketing and productivity guru, and he is starting an all-new session of his 90-day course called Wake Up Productive. And I've seen... Uh, a lot of Evan Pagan's presentations, and I've seen an outline of a prior version of this course. And as far as I can tell, it is state-of-the-art in terms of productivity and time management. If you're interested in learning more, just go to my blog and see on the right-hand side, Evan Pagan's Wake Up Productive, and you can check out a video for yourself and see if this guy 
appeals to you. I'll talk more about what I'm going to try to do in partnership with him in future shows. Uh, the next show is going to be next week, 10 a.m. Pacific time, 1 p.m. Eastern time. This is going to be the time slot for future shows all into the foreseeable future. So thanks, everyone, for joining in in this new time slot. And thanks again to John Allison, our guest for today, for discussing with us his book, The Leadership Crisis and the Free Market Cure. If you want to continue the discussion about today's show, any aspect of it, go over to my blog at don'tletitgo.com. Leave comments. And while you're there, if you want to click follow, you can get on my list as well. Uh, Everyone, thank you very much. And I will talk to you next week. Take care.